Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. The trade chief of the European Union is in China for the China-EU high-level economic and trade dialogue, saying no intention to decouple from China. Former U.S. State Secretary Henry Kissinger has warned against the dangers of decoupling between the United States and China. Solomon Islands Prime Minister has blasted Japan's discharge of nuclear-contaminated water into the ocean, calling it an attack on global trust. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Vice President of the European Commission and the EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis has assured that the European Union had no intention of decoupling from China. His statements came during a speech in Shanghai, marking the start to his four-day visit to China, which culminates in the 10th China-EU high-level economic and trade dialogue. He also pledged to strengthen ties with China to address global crises such as food security and climate change. But the bloc's trade chief stressed the EU's pursuit of de-risking its relationship with China for a more balanced economic partnership. The recent EU anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicles looms large in discussions, with China urging the EU side to view the development of China's EV industry objectively, emphasizing the advantages of China's EV industry are not formed by the so-called huge subsidies. China phased out all EV subsidies by 2022. So for more on the topic and China-EU trade relations, let's have Dr. Hans-Peter Berghoff, professor and chair of the Banking and Finance Department at the University of Hohenheim, Germany. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Pleasure to be with you again. Professor, the EU-China high-level economic and trade dialogues is taking place amidst a possible use anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese EVs. How do you see this investigation affecting the overall trade dynamics between the EU and China today? Well, maybe it's good first to understand the Europeans in the respect. I mean, Germany, Italy, France, uh, these are car producing countries and so the entrance of chinese companies in the e-car electric electronic car market and, and this happens right now and they're getting seen on our roads now uh, this is a very relevant event which will change many basic parameters of trade between china and the european union which means if this happens we must have some control over it seeing that it really happens on a fair basis that it really leads to more competition and that it does not endanger competition and that's difficult to guarantee for us because for example china's access to certain raw materials we don't have in the european union so i can very well understand that the european commission on trade has a very close look at this and tries to find out what's happening here exactly just to protect competition as you said, the EU talked about the EU's needs to protect itself, emphasizing fair competition in the bloc. But China believes that the EU's move to protect its own industry in the name of fair competition, which they believe is a naked act of protectionism, which will seriously disrupt the supply chain of the global auto industry chain. How do you view this different stance? I think it shows very well how important it is that China and the European Union talk with each other. Uh, But I can guarantee you from the European side, naked acts of protectionism is not what the European Union wants to do. Uh, That's for sure. I mean, we we value competition very highly. It's one of the core values of our our community, European community. Uh, So if we just act arbitrary on this field, given all the the lobbyisms there might be and the individual economic interests, if we would act like that in the European Union, we would destroy the values our union is based on. So we will try to be fair, but we know uh, perfect fairness is not possible in the world that holds for China as for the European Union. So it's good to talk about it. Mr. Dombrovskis emphasized that de-risking is not decoupling, and the EU has no intention of decoupling from China. So how do you look at these two terms and shifts of attitude of the bloc from decouple to de-risk with China? Do you see any political factors behind the pursuit of these terms? 
I see mainly economic factors behind it. I mean, there are some politicians said, OK, China is a system we don't understand. Uh, and maybe we should get much more uh, independence from that up to the point of decoupling totally. And then we realize, some, some people realize, well, this is stupid. I mean, we work together in China in a very efficient way, which from which both sides benefit. Uh, de-risking something totally different just says, well, in your policy, in your international relationships, in your trade relationships, you just should use the old principle of diversification to be sure that the total development of the global economy and your own development is more stable. So we have in some areas become to depend on China and then we might try to correct this. Uh, but in a multipolar world, as China is striving to get, um, this is possible and something any country would like to do. When we emphasizing de-risking, it seems that it creates a negative narrative or perception in business circles and political circles. Then how can you ensure that their efforts to secure economic and trade interest do not lead to a more significant rift or decoupling in China-EU relations? Well, guaranteeing is impossible in politics. And even if you look at a country like mine, if you look at how our chancellor is talking about the topic and how our foreign minister is talking about the topic, you could see there's some difference in between. That's in democracy like that. They're from different parties. They have a different view on things and they're able to express this. But nonetheless, there's an official policy. And I mean, Mr. Dombrovsky represents his official policy of the European Union. And so if he says it's de-risking, not decoupling, I think that is what you can hold on. As the European Union has very stable institutions nowadays, so you can, to some degree, rely on this statement. We don't want to have a decoupling, we want to have a de-risking, if the environment, the future of the world, would allow such a policy. But I'm very much aware the risk in the, in the global political system has increased greatly in the last two years, and so we're not sure what will happen. According to many Chinese analysts, they believe uh, the EU has launched various initiatives under the banner of de-risking, but which considered have potential risks for the China-EU trade relations. How do you look at China's concerns uh, regarding the EU's approach to economic and trade security? I think if you look at the pure data, uh, we are very far from uh, decoupling. I mean, if you look at the investment of Germany in China, they've grown a lot. Some of it has grown for a bad reason, because it's due to the war in, in, in Ukraine, the aggression of Russia against Ukraine, which leads to high energy, energy price, which makes German companies invest in other countries, amongst them China. So it's somehow a very bad windfall profit for China. But still, these companies decide to invest in China, and the German government doesn't hinder them, the European uh, Union doesn't hinder them to do this. So in fact, Besides all the political noises we might have, mm-hmm. uh, the cooperation is still there and it's, and it's getting constructive. And I think just a few days ago, China made them made set a signal saying we want to have this by uh, opening more channels for for capital transfers. So there is some kind of awareness on both sides that we need this cooperation. So I'm not so negative about that. I think we can work as it is. I mean, uh, but we must look at the political side of the issue. Uh, we must keep the political risks under control because they will have very, very bad uh, economic repercussions if this gets out of control. Chinese Ministry of Commerce earlier highlights the extensive cooperation and shared interests between you and China in many fields, including the auto industry. China said it always adheres to an open and cooperative attitude and welcomes EU companies to further expand investment in China, including investment in electric vehicles. How do you assess the prospects for cooperation between the two in auto industry, regardless of any political or other obstacles, as you talked about earlier? Well, we created together a very efficient system of international work sharing. This is a great advantage for the whole global economy, and we should work on that. We must be aware that the the parameters are changing, uh, because now there are Chinese producers who produce products which are acceptable in their quality for the global uh, community. And this will change the world. I wonder how. But in principle, the European Union is open to this as long as it leads to more competition and not to less competition. That's a bit of a problem with China because you've got different companies competing with each other. But on the other hand, your international policy is guided by the Communist Party, by the government. 
So it's hard for us to distinguish between uh, where we have, where do we have competition between different players, and where we might have something like a coordinated activity of Chinese companies on our markets. So we need more guarantees that there's real competition, and then I think everybody will profit from more competition in the cars market, and it will lead to should a fast, no, say faster technological development, better qualities, better prices. So we can all profit from that if we set a framework that allows us to have this in a competitive economy. Mm-hmm. Professor, let's shift the focus a bit to enterprises from the EU, because in recent years, a series of actions of the EU against China, especially in the trade area, have aroused many questions and concerns of the EU enterprises, especially German enterprises. How do you view their concerns? Do you think there are any potential harm that EU's action could bring to uh, its own businesses and trade dynamics? Well, there are two risks in that. The first one is that we get some kind of irrational reaction on the Chinese side. That they say, okay, there's somebody saying in Europe something we don't like, and then we overreact to that. And remember, uh, Europe has many, many different voices with many, many different views. Uh, If you adhere to the official policy of the European Union, you have a basis you can rely on. If you look at everything said somewhere in Europe, uh, you might get very confused. So please stay rational in that, what, what I would say as a, as a German. And on the other hand, we have the war going on in, uh, in, in where Russia attacks Ukraine. The political risk behind it is still there. I don't know where this ends, but we've got an open wound on our, our eastern border of, the Europe, of Europe. Um, and this has political risks where I simply don't know what happens. And the companies are complaining about these risks, but that's something we can't do anything about. There's nothing the European Union could do about it. Um, for sure, as I said before, if this cooperation with China breaks down, uh, there'll be lots of damage on both sides. As diplomatic efforts between the EU and China continue, do you expect a consensus to be reached during the talk on the anti-subsidy issue? And uh, what specific outcomes or agreements would you hope to see emerge from the discussion between EU and Chinese officials? I think we need a permanent process of communication with China on these issues, not only in these talks, because when these talks are over, we still have the same problems to talk about if we don't find a solution. I think there's on both sides a strong interest to find a solution now or maybe somewhat later. And I'm, I don't want to be, to be too specific about these aspects. I think China, in some respect, is still a semi-open economy for foreigners. There is still something to do on this aspect. On the other hand, we need a very close cooperation in China if we want to really raise or the potential of efficiency. And we must be aware of the fact that all this happens still in two different political systems, which is on the one hand pretty good because it means we better diversify. Yeah, we've got different risks in different political systems. So the overall development can be more stable, more good for the global welfare if we are able to cooperate. But it also means there are certain limitations, some problems of communication which are really, really difficult to overcome. Um, and we should be aware of any solution of these aspects we can gain a lot by better diversification, uh, by cooperation. On the other hand, we must be aware of where are the limits of our cooperation given by the respective different political systems. Thank you, Dr. Hans-Peter Berghoff, for your time and insightful opinions. That's Professor Hans-Peter Berghoff, Chair of the Banking and Finance Department at the University of Hohenheim, Germany. More to come, former U.S. State Secretary Henry Kissinger has warned against the dangers of decoupling between the United States and China. You're listening to Bro Today. Stay with us. The 2023 Bund Summit on the weekend has advocated for the global cooperation. Experts emphasize the need to build bridges to navigate uncertain international economic waters. In his opening remarks, Vice Chairman Ning Jizhe of the China Center for International Economic Exchanges pointed out that China's further development has provided the world with new opportunities for cooperation rather than adding risk. He said, and while the global economic 
economic recovery has slowed, China's economy has shown resilience and a forward-moving trend despite its ups and downs, holding an overall leading position worldwide. Meanwhile, former U.S. State Secretary Henry Kissinger also addressed the summit, warning against the dangers of decoupling between the United States and China. So for more on this, our Zhang Yang spoke with Chu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. So, Professor Chu, first of all, the global cooperation was advocated at Bund Summit, and a big question discussed over there is globalization. So what is the next for globalization, do you think? Well, this is such a quiet topic. Uh, we don't know what's going to be the next stop for the globalization. Actually, uh, we're facing uh, the retreating of the globalization recently, but I think most people still want to push it forward. I think the next step of the globalization is to rebuild the consensus, rebuild values, and rebuild infrastructures and corporations. I think right now, um, many countries, especially developed nations, um, they are suspicious about what happened with the globalization. But countries like emerging markets, uh, the hard workers like China, uh, like ASEAN nations, like Latin America and Africa, they want to merge into this new order of the globalization. So I think the next step of the globalization will not, like before, be uh, solely dominated by the developed nations after the World War II. And it's going to be restructured. It's going to have some new standard remade uh, by emerging countries like China and uh, ASEAN countries and etc. And also, uh, we're going to have new patterns of uh, corporations not built on the hegemony, not built on uh, the threatening uh, military forces, but built on uh, the uh, corporation, win-win result and a mutual beneficial uh, cooperation. So I think this must be uh, where we start of the next round of the globalization. Mm. And talking about the current global economic situation, are you concerned that we are entering into a new era of slower global growth? Yes, I think that has several reasons behind that. Number one reason, I think the most fundamental one is actually we do not see fundamental breakthrough in the technology uh, in the past 20 or 10 years at all. Um, the only thing that makes some uh, groundbreaking changes is internet and the digital economy, and that's it. And secondly, is that we're facing the rebuild of international orders, and um, the thing that we have really built after the Second World War has facing major challenges. So I think the new round of the globalization really need to meet these new challenges, really need to answer the questions posed by the time and the changing time. And now let's talk about the Chinese economy. China State Council recently talked about speeding up the new industrialization. So what's your take on it, especially when it comes to China's vast manufacturing sector? Well, if you want to understand what is uh, the uh, new industrialization of China, you have to understand uh, one important concept about China style, Chinese style modernization. Because the new industrialization of China is actually one part of this big concept of modernization of us. Because this modernization and this industrialization is very, very unique, very different from what we have already witnessed in the past 100 years with, uh, you know, old industrialized countries. For example, in China, we have several features. We are industrialization and modernization with huge population bases, which was not seen in America, in England, and Germany, and France because their population is smaller. And also, it's going to be more inclusive development with less gap on income, um, like Thomas Piketty has already described in his book of 21st century economics, that in the West, we've been seeing the capitalism and old pattern of the industrialization only made the gap bigger and bigger. And now it's more than industrialization. It's more like a financialization mm -hmm. in the West. And China want to avoid that. And thirdly, it's about the harmony between men and nature. In the past 100 and 200 years, the West has marched through a very, very rough road, pollution first, and then treat it, and then get rich. But in China, in the past 40 years, we want just to jump over this period of time. We don't want to destroy our home, our environment. We want lush mountains and clear rivers. As well as we want, you know, beneficial uh, life and high living standard. 
And also, uh, we want to achieve not only material wealth, but also we want spiritual and culture wealth. So based on that, you need the new industrialization, which means our industrialization will be suiting the Chinese large population bases, will be greener, will be more efficient, uh, will be strike a balance not only on the material products, but also on the spiritual and the cultural products. Mm-hmm. So that is new industrialization. So how to achieve this new industrialization? Because uh, people say innovation-driven development is a key aspect of the new industrialization. So how do you see China's innovation capability now? Well, in order to achieve industrialization, I think uh, the thing you need to address is several uh, to begin with. Number one is energy. Second is about transportation and shipment. The third thing is about um, uh, markets and raw materials. So in the past 100 years, the dominant pattern of industrialization dominated by the West, led by the West, actually are showing, okay, they're solving the energy issues by, you know, have uh, you know, uh, more pollutant, have uh, more problems with energy production, for example, the coal and the fossil fuel, and also like the uh, nuclear power. Uh, it's very efficient, but also with lots of the uh, danger come after that, for example, just the Fukushima, uh, you know, incident with Japan, right? And in China, we want to start uh, because we are actually a late starter, so it would give us a chance to directly jump into the new energy, the renewable energy, clean energy. So if you take a look at China's energy mix, more than 50% of the energy mix already been using the green energy. That's not only because it's cleaner, but also its marginal cost is getting to like zero. For example, if you downput like 10 million US dollar to build a solar farm or a wind farm, but as every kilowatt hours of the power generated with that, the more you generated, the every unit price for the uh, power is going to be cheaper and cheaper and getting close to zero, which enables Chinese products to be with better quality, but also with reduced cost. Meanwhile, you don't need to reduce the salary and the payment of the workers. Mm. So you see the beauty of it. And the second is about transportation and shipment. China incorporated digital economy with the most modernized, advanced you know, shipment and the delivery system all globally. So it made everything so efficient. You can get your, your product you ordered online within a day or two. And mm. also, thirdly, we cooperate. We build you know, trade agreement and protocols with our neighboring countries and all over the world. By working together with each other, everybody can benefit from the globalization and everybody can be a proactive participant in it. Everybody can win. Mm. So you see, all this has marked a difference between the new industrialization and the past ones. Mm. And let's talk about China's economic recovery. So looking at the August data that when it comes to the credit inflation and all other you know, activity uh, data from the fixed asset investment, industrial production, retail sales, they all beating the market expectations. So do you think China's economic recovery is firmer? Of course. Um, we had this discussion and interview at the uh, uh, beginning of this year. And also I set the same story and my own judgment to Bloomberg as well. I told them this year is gonna be slow recovery. We're gonna make progress slowly but steadily. You're not gonna expect the skyrocketing booming or rally from the bottom of the last year, but also we're gonna make progress and with low inflation rate, but it was uh, the steady and a firm recovery. And now the result has shows you about that. Even though we have overlapping uncertainties uh, outside China, like uh, the uh, demand of the international market shrinking and also supply chain issues and the geopolitical in, uh, conflicts. But China's manufacturing sector, especially the high-end manufacturing sector, has already seen uh, expansion as well as domestic consumption. That goes without saying it's not recovering it's already been overheating. Uh, it's too busy everywhere are people. Um, so I think China is going to continue with the trend, even though we're still not meeting uh, the the level that we are expecting uh, pre the uh, pandemic. But I think we're getting very close to that situation. The only thing is that uh, can we just uh, continue to boost people's confidence in consumption and property market? And I think China in the next year, 20. Uh, 
2024, I think we're going to see some major recover uh, from the low low point of the last year. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. The Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands has blasted Japan's discharge of nuclear contaminated water into the ocean. Manase Sogabella has described it to the UN General Assembly as an attack on global trust and solidarity. Mr. President, Solomon Islands stands with like-minded Pacific Islanders and is, is appalled by Japan's decision to discharge over a million tons of treated nuclear waste water into the, into the ocean. We note IAEA's assessment report is, is inconclusive and that the scientific data shared remains in, inadequate, incomplete, and biased. These concerns were ignored. If this nuclear waste is safe, it should be stored in Japan. The fact that it's dumped into the ocean shows that it is not safe. The operator of the tsunami-crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant dumped 7,800 tons of nuclear-contaminated water into the sea in the first phase of its release, which ended two weeks ago. The second phase, involving the same amount of water, is expected to begin in late September or early October. So for more on the story, joining us on the line is Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Mahoney. Thanks for having me. The Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands has criticized the Japan's decision as an attack on global trust and solidarity. How do you read his remarks here? What are the potential environmental and ecological consequences of releasing over 1 million tons of nuclear contaminated water into the ocean to the Pacific region? Well, first, let's, let's just quickly answer the, the second part of your question, which is we really don't know confidently what are the potential uh, environmental and ecological consequences of this uh, release. But to, to respond directly to the, to the prime minister's concerns, uh, there are really three points of contention here. The first is whether the science is adequate. Uh, several countries are concerned whether enough testing has been done, whether the testing has been reliable, uh, whether science is still limited in terms of its ability to answer a number of still unanswered uh, questions. Uh, the second is that uh, some countries just, uh, just don't trust uh, science, uh, whatever its quality. Uh, we see this around the world, uh, not just in the South Pacific. Uh, for example, a significant number of people in the United States did not trust American RNA COVID vaccines during the outbreak uh, and insisted uh, the U.S. government did not have the right to force them uh, to take them. Now, these people did not trust the government. They didn't trust the pharmaceutical companies or the scientists and doctors promoting the vaccines. And in some cases, um, uh, uh, this is because they, had, they believed that they had been victimized and lied to in the past by these same groups, or, or simply because they have alternative ways of thinking. For example, some religious people have a distrust in science, uh, believing it to have some sort of fundamental conflict with faith. So it's not at all strange that some people in the South Pacific might distrust the science and Japanese government, and might even distrust the science even if it was done well. Uh, nevertheless, uh, some of them believe that the Japanese decision to dump the wastewater, uh, to return to my, to my American example, is tantamount to being forced to take a vaccine that they don't trust or, or believe in. Uh, so when the prime minister speaks of uh, broken solidar- uh, solidarity, has, he has this in mind in part uh, that Japan is forcing the Pacific to drink this wastewater, whether or not it's actually safe. And let's be clear, no one uh, believes that it's actually good for the ocean. Now, thirdly, uh, South Pacific nations were exposed uh, to heavy nuclear testing, and Japan suffered uh, two nuclear attacks to end World War II. Uh, Many South Pacific countries believed that they shared a solidarity with Japan that would have prevented this kind of release from ever happening, that Japan would empathize and set aside whatever might uh, be uh, what might be a narrow national interest in favor of others who've likewise suffered. 
but that's proven uh, to not be the case here. As you mentioned, there are a lot of concerns related to the adequacy and completeness of this scientific data and the IAEA's assessment. But what efforts should Japan do to ease such concerns from nations like Solomon Islands? Well, you know, it, it is a concern about the testing. Uh, uh, the first is, is uh, to, to, to go right to the heart of the matter, is whether the UN uh, agency, the IAEA, uh, uh, testing and monitoring protocols uh, and governance oversight uh, uh, have been sufficient, whether or not the, the safety standards are sufficient and whether or not um, we have the right uh, protocols in place. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the data that's being generated uh, for the UN to assess is actually being supplied by TEPCO, uh, the company responsible for uh, the, 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 the Fukushima plant, mm-hmm. and which in the past uh, has been maligned uh, by the Japanese government itself for uh, 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 being negligent when, uh, negligent when it comes to safety concerns um, and uh, uh, even uh, perhaps uh, sometimes misleading with previous uh, uh, testing assessments. Uh, in fact, uh, last year, uh, TEPCO had said that it, the water was safe, and, and it was proven not to be. So they uh, did another round of, of cleaning and testing uh, before we reached this new decision. So the fact that TEPCO is in some way responsible for collecting uh, the data uh, and supplying that to the UN is something that has, has raised uh, a lot of concerns uh, and cast doubt over the safety of this release. Professor, the Prime Minister also suggested that if the nuclear waste water is safe, it should be stored in Japan rather than being dumped into the ocean. This suggestion has been brought up by Japan's domestic groups, neighboring nations, and now uh, the island nations from the Pacific region. How feasible is this? Why does Japanese government refuse to take any plans or consideration like this one? Well, I think it's clear that uh, Japan realizes that the safest thing for Japan is to dump it in the ocean. Um, uh, likewise, uh, the political and economic cost of storing it in Japan have no doubt uh, been assessed by Tokyo as greater than uh, dumping it. Um, now, there have been uh, Japanese voices that have opposed the release, but in fact, uh, a majority have quietly uh, supported it. Uh, as for the feasibility of storing it on land, uh, we simply don't know. Uh, Tokyo hasn't been transparent about alternatives. We know the second phase of the water discharge is expected to begin soon, uh, and the international community are expecting international regulatory frameworks or agreements that can be in place to oversee and monitor such actions. But do we have such frameworks, or do we see any efforts to create such frameworks and to effectively ensuring the safety of marine environment and human health? Well, on the one hand, the IAEA is monitoring uh, data associated with the releases, and a lot of people around the world seem to think that this is a framework and that it is sufficient. Uh, And to date, uh, the agency says that uh, results, testing results, are within international safety uh, safety standards. And this has reassured a lot of people uh, around the world. But, uh, uh, you know, on the other hand, as as I said, a lot of this uh, data is provided to the IAEA by TEPCO itself, uh, and again, uh, we have we have reason to be suspicious of uh, anything that TEPCO does. Uh, and this is why some governments, including the Chinese government, have said that we need uh, a true international protocol with foreign governments playing uh, an oversight role through the UN uh, and without relying on Japan or TEPCO to provide uh, the testing data. In his speech, the Solomon Prime Minister also condemned the history of nuclear testing in the Pacific by the United States, Britain, and France. He noted that from 1946 to 1996, uh, more than 300 nuclear tests were conducted in the Marshall Islands, the French Polynesia, etc. These countries have also remained silent on Japan's discharge of radioactive water. What are the factors that might might explain their silence and what more can be done to ensure the Pacific Islanders' voices are heard on issues like this? Well, in fact, voices of concern have been heard in all three places, uh, uh, most loudly uh, in Kiribati, where uh, uh, with the vice president uh, criticizing the decision uh, while visiting China. Uh, Kiribati has more real autonomy than French Polynesia, which is under French rule, uh, with uh, Paris officially 
having praised what it uh, describes as uh, Japanese transparency. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Marshall Islands uh, is awaiting U.S. congressional action over a new compact of uh, free association, uh, which would provide billions in assistance uh, and allow Marshallese to move freely to the U.S. to deliver work, uh, and likewise provide security guarantees uh, that coalesce with the U.S. Indo-Pacific concept, which one could argue includes uh, strategic association with Japan. Uh, however, you know, uh, again, both uh, French Polynesia and uh, the Marshall Islands were subjected to uh, hundreds of nuclear tests and are not at all happy uh, with the Fukushima uh, release, uh, as many of their citizens, scientists, and some of their government, uh, government officials have uh, uh, openly acknowledged. Now, I think uh, their voices, uh, uh, I mean, the the highest level voices, however you muted, have been heard uh, uh, by Japan, by the U.S., by the U.N., uh, by the IAEA. Uh, The problem, I suspect, is that these islands were long used as dumping grounds. Uh, Their populations are small. Their economies are tiny. Uh, Perhaps some view their uh, strategic value as being only a fraction of Japan's in terms of uh, uh, current uh, geopolitical competition. Uh, but more to the point, uh, the U.S. and other Western countries have decided officially, uh, at least, that the uh, uh, release is safe, uh, despite concerns to the contrary from some leading scientists and laboratory networks in the U.S. Uh, itself. And, you know, it's really hard to argue with big money and big countries uh, when they have decided that it's not only right, that it's righteous. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful opinion and your analysis. That's Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. New updates surrounding the escalating India-Canada diplomatic role. U.S. Ambassador to Canada David Cohen has confirmed the intelligence-sharing network of Five Eyes informed the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of the possible involvement of Indian agents in the murder of a Canadian citizen in June. Trudeau had previously cited credible intelligence linking Indian agents to the killing of Canadian Sikh leader Hardy Singh Nija, sparking a strong denial of New Delhi. In the days since, as diplomatic tensions continue to ratchet up, from Canada reassessing its staffing in India to India's suspending visa services for Canadians, there have been swirling questions about what lies at the center of this story, what role has the U.S. been playing in this unfolding diplomatic showdown? To delve into this, joining us on the line is Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you for having me. First of all, how do you look at the role of the intelligence sharing network of Five Eyes played in influencing the India-Canada dispute? What broader implications might this have for this situation? Well, I think it's, uh, this episode, that this diplomatic role between uh, India and Canada uh, is a test case of the uh, notorious uh, so-called uh, intelligence sharing network, Five Eyes, United States, UK, and uh, Canadians, and Australian, and uh, New Zealand. Um, the 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 the, uh, the inference, I mean, the, the that has been played in in, uh, in international uh, relations, if I can say. Well, remember this this uh, uh, framework or this network started in the Cold War, and it is very much, I think. Uh, uh, mystery, if we can say, or raise the question, why a Cold War for the intelligence sharing network uh, have been maintained and now become increasingly um, salient or prominent in terms of uh, uh, intelligence gathering and intelligence mm-hmm. and, and sharing. And with regard to the question, uh, specific questions of uh, uh, with with, with uh, India and India and Canada, uh, I think uh, of course uh, uh, the uh, Indians are very much frustrated and uh, I think upset about the fact that despite the closing or increasingly a close relationship, uh, it, it remains a target of uh, monitoring or or 
in other way around, I mean, it's been outside that uh, I mean, intelligence sharing uh, uh, sort of network. In other words, India, whatever effort, uh, whatever, I mean, uh, sort of how close it has been made towards these uh, US-led networking, it is and remains an outliner of that, uh, that, that network. So that, of course, have implications about the uh, effectiveness or, or impact of, uh, of India in its uh, diplomacy or it's, uh, that uh, it's perceived to be increasingly close to the West-led uh, network. Earlier, many believe the United States has taken a relatively subtle approach in responding to the India-Canada diplomatic dispute. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is the only high-level official made a public response urging India to cooperate with Canada in investigating the Canadian Sikh leader's assassination. And now, one of the U.S. top diplomats for the first time confirmed that the involvement of five vice in prompting the dispute. Uh, can you elaborate on Washington's stance and how do you view the U.S. factor in this dispute? I think the U.S. will never uh, sort of acknowledge uh, openly of, the, of the, the role. But the very fact that the media, U.S. media exposed, uh, I mean, reported that shows the depth and the, the, the I think the role played by that. It is true. I think uh, publicly, the public, in terms of public statement, the United States high-level official, including the Secretary of State, the uh, National Security Advisor, and also, I think, the ambassadors, I mean, the U.S. ambassador to India and Canada, as their remarks, their statement, the public statement has been very cautious and nuanced. But it is true, if you read, one read very carefully the statement by, by Secretary uh, of the U.S., I think uh, they are quite uh, on leading on, I think, Canada in terms of pushing or mm. uh, India to be cooperative. Having said that, we have also noticed that it seems that uh, uh, privately or uh, the back uh, sort of uh, channel diplomacy, U.S. tries to play a kind of a, uh, uh, facilitator or play the role of providing an office for the office in mm. helping. Uh, India and Canadians, Indians, Canadians, to work out uh, uh, the problems, their roles in a proper way. But they all see how depth, uh, how deep, and how extensive, I think, uh, the uh, intelligence sharing cooperation regarding vis-a-vis India, because we're talking about the the, the, the sharing, not specifically, I mean, this special case. Well, I mean, affect the overall relationship. I would only argue that India are very much I think, upset about that. Speaking of India's perspective, given the historical emphasis on strategic autonomy by India, how might this dispute influence India's future foreign policy decisions and its relationship with Canada and the United States? I think in general, uh, this episode, this diplomatic role, will not fundamentally affect the overall direction or tendency of India in terms of uh, developing its relationship with West in general and these five uh, uh, countries uh, in, in, in particular. Having said that, I think this episode, this uh, uh, sort of uh, incident does tell Indian public, and also I think uh, Department of Concern, intelligence community and other included, the extent or the limits of that. And of course, raising the question of the uh, utility or the limits uh, of that. I think it will only uh, make Indian uh, in, uh, to, to, to think twice about, about that, uh, being a country uh, with a nation proud, with a lot of pride, and also I think thinking itself as a, 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 a country rising power uh, that I have increasingly recognized by international internationally, and uh, I mean still, I mean despite these good words, still I think are uh, not very much uh, sort of trusted or still. 
and the subject of uh, intelligence surveillance of uh, the five so-called five eyes network. Thanks, Dr. Rong, for your time. That's Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. You are listening to Road Today. France is set to end its military presence in Niger and pull its ambassador out of the country. French President Emmanuel Macron says the 1,500 French soldiers deployed in Niger will return by the end of the year. France has decided to bring back its ambassador, and the coming hours of our ambassador and several diplomats will return to France. And we'll put an end to our military cooperation with the current Niger authorities because they don't want to fight against terrorism anymore. Relations between Nigeria and France have deteriorated after the coup in the African country. So for more on the recent development, let's have Dr. He Wenping, expert on African affairs with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Hi, thank you for having me. How do you interpret the recent decision by France to withdraw its troops from Nigeria and recall its ambassador? What are the implications of this move for the region's security and dynamics? Well, uh, this decision made by French President Macron, I think, uh, uh, sent a very clear message. That is, uh, in this battle and the competition between uh, France and the media, actually, now France, uh, they made... Uh, you know, surrender, uh, they retreat. Uh, before, uh, Macron also said, oh, the ambassador, French ambassador, will not, uh, you know, uh, follow any order given by this military, uh, you know, uh, government. So they still loyalty and cooperate with the former civilian, uh, you know, government in media. But now, uh, because after so uh, many days, actually almost two months now, uh, from this uh, uh, military coup. So we see now the Niger military government remained there, uh, stand firmly, and then the French uh, ambassador have to leave. So obviously, uh, this competition ended up with the French, uh, their retreat, and their, you know, give up. And for the Sakhalin region security dynamics, I think, of course, there's going to be more training, uh for the security situation uh, in this region. And anti-terror, uh, this uh, situation also we are getting uh, more, you know, challenged than before. Uh, because uh, even uh, Mali, like Burkina Faso, after those two countries also gone through the military coup, actually the terror uh, activity in those two countries now is getting more rather than getting less. Nigeria's junta has welcomed the French troop withdrawal, stating that it marks a step towards sovereignty. How do you see this development impacting Nigeria's political landscape and relations with foreign powers? Yeah, obviously, uh, this uh, Nigeria's junta, they of course they welcome uh, this, uh, uh, you know, this victory uh, for them. Uh, definitely, this is a very proud moment uh, for them to celebrating this victory uh, over France, because now eventually a French ambassador leaving and also those uh, military 1,500 uh, French troops also are leaving. Uh, so this is obviously uh, shows their victory. Uh, but, uh, you know, for Niger's the political landscape, uh, and I think, of course, uh, this uh, Niger military government now set a very solid uh, uh, pace. And uh, now they are consolidated. Uh, their achievements coming from this uh, military coup. And uh, with foreign powers relations, definitely uh, this chapter with the French government now is over, completely over. In their language, it's talking about uh, saying this is uh, anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism. This is a final full stop, uh, full, you know, period. Uh, now they are uh, with foreign powers. Obviously, I think they are follow. Mali and the Burkina Faso's footsteps, uh, probably they will open another chance uh, for Russians, uh, this military, uh, you know, uh, uh, like Wagner, probably they can step in. Uh, but before, American uh, Deputy State Secretary had already given a very serious warning uh, to Niger, this military uh, official, saying 
any like uh, moving from Wagner, that means a very serious consequences uh, mm. for those uh, uh, military government. So I don't know so far those uh, uh, warning from the White House uh, remain uh, very effective or very you know becoming a serious challenge for those major military government or just like uh, uh, passing through the year. Uh, not uh, serious uh, worrying at all. So it's fully depend on the situation on the ground and also depend on how the military duta, uh, you know, they analyze their situation. Uh, maybe they thought everything settled. Everything's okay now. But at least I think they will take some moment uh, mm-hmm. for keep quiet. I'm not saying uh, uh, make Amer- uh, French troops out. Immediately get some new one in. Uh, not that fast. At least they will take their own government, uh, this, uh, you know, legitimacy and also the power consolidation as the priority. We know there are historical and strategic factors that have shaped France's military presence in the region, but France has been pulling out after coups in the region. Can you elaborate on the factors that contributed to France's diminished influence in West Africa? Oh, yes, there are lots of uh, factors behind uh, this uh, withdrawal uh, by French uh, this military influence. Number one, uh, I think uh, all those past 10 years anti-terror, uh, anti-terror by uh, French troops facing Sahara region, not ended up with a good result. Uh, this is the number one uh, factor because this terror issue remained there. Uh, even, you know, it's on the rise, so the local people all suffered. Uh, from those terror attacks, and they even suffered from French, uh, you know, existence there, uh, because they also uh, need to make full use of the local, uh, those all kinds of support, but uh, not to bring any benefit uh, for the local people. So this is number one factor. Number two, uh, because you know, uh, this all the past ten years is not a good international situation time. Uh, you know, COVID nineteen three years. And also recent one and a half year, this Ukraine crisis. All the one disaster followed another disaster. So like a slowing war and make those uh, local situation, even local government, all short of budget. So they cannot add any budget for the military, uh, this building equipment, added new weapon equipment. So make this anti-terror, you know, cooperated with the French troops. Also, not that effective. Thanks, Dr. Ho Wenping, expert on African affairs with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.